Uh, glad to be here, y'all. To be uh, to clarify that story that Doug was telling, I said, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a pro soccer player. And he said, you're not good enough. <laughs> I said, I guess I'll be a drummer. So that's what I did. So uh, it is with a grateful heart and a piece of gum that uh, I get to be here with y'all tonight. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak and get in front of uh, people at the college where our son just graduated in May. Kenny Bryan is, uh, uh, I mean, he worked with FUSAV and he was an O staffer and uh, graduated and moved on to Nashville. So we've been spending a lot of the last four years up here uh, visiting him and enjoying some great events and not having to go to class, which is the best part of being in a college <laughs> as a parent. So we uh, have enjoyed our firm experience. I know some of the uh, kids too from back in Columbia from the soccer fields there. Uh, I want to thank my wife, Laura, for, for being here tonight and for uh, the uh, uh, Jody and Doug for taking us out for a good meal before we uh, got started tonight. Uh, I'll jump right in. I want to just share a testimony, which is my story, how I got from a certain place in my life and that sort of uh, general journey and how I arrive to an FCA gathering at Furman University uh, in the year 2022, which I'll get that. <laughs> I grew up uh, in a great family. I was uh, not without love. Our uh, two parents uh, did great. They, they fed us, they, they sheltered us. They, uh, we got educated and, and, and loved and we had five, I had four siblings. So we had a big crew and we were mainly raised outside of Chicago. And uh, no complaints there. I had every chance to be given uh, good ideas to go forward in life, but um, I sort of had some other ideas. I was a little kid who's had some uh, a little deviant spirit. I was a thrill seeker. I liked uh, to challenge authority whenever I had the chance. And when I uh, won out, I liked to celebrate that with my buddies. And wasn't the healthiest of attitudes, certainly, uh, for any young child. But uh, that's what I had going on beneath the surface. And, uh, you know, I had uh, some gifts. I had a strong self-will, uh, a work ethic I was taught by my parents. I could work hard and I knew the value. I had an intellect of sorts. I got by in school. Never a straight A student, but I, I learned enough. I had some skills that I, I held, some assets, and um, probably, if I'm honest, a little privilege too. There were some things that I got to do as a child growing up that others were not gifted with. And I don't take those for granted either. Um, so I had these skills, these gifts, and I, and I moved forward. You know, I wasn't one who always looked out to see what was awaiting me. I wanted to go fast. That was my deal. Where are you going? I don't know, but I'm getting there fast. That was my sort of attitude in life. And so I raced forward. I had, you know, goals. I had, you know, sports triumphs that I was hoping to achieve, you know, maybe career plans as I got older and relational goals, maybe starting a family someday. And uh, of course, material desires as well. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with any of these uh, sort of goals and places to shoot for uh, necessarily. They're, they're things that we do as humans, right? We want to be happy. We want to have a smile. We want to uh, fill our lives up with great things. But I was missing one certain thing that would hurt me in the long run. I didn't know I was missing anything as a, as a kid. And it was, I called it, I guess, a, a guide, a spiritual beacon 
something you can see in the distance or you know is there, or at least you're heading toward. And maybe a beacon in the ocean is something that bobs up and down, and maybe you don't take a straight path there all the time, but you know where it is. So when you diverge and you get off a little bit and you maybe take a wrong turn, if you can see that beacon and you know it exists and you can believe and have faith in it, you're going to get there eventually. None of us have that straight and perfect path anyway. But I was missing that spiritual beacon. I missed uh, a guide, something that was a force bigger than myself, and I call it God. I went to a, you know, my parents put me and a couple of my siblings into a Christian school. I think one of my brothers was already banned from the Christian school from my other town. I had two older brothers, yeah. They, we're not always great. So I got to go into the Christian school and I learned some stuff. You know, the Bible was part of our everyday uh, classes. And I tell you, I pushed back. I didn't like it. It frankly scared me. And uh, by the time I got to high school, which was a public school, I was happy to have put that behind. And I didn't know I was missing anything. I didn't know there was anything wrong with that. My parents had us going to church. So I thought 60 minutes a week, that's enough, right? For the 168 hours that we have in a week, I was willing to put 60 minutes in and think that would carry me the rest of the way. And uh, that was not well thought out. So I did not have this beacon. Um, and I call this spiritual beacon maybe a combination of a few things. It's you know not only to know a powerful God, who today for me is Jesus Christ, but to understand that God on some level. Not just to read about it or memorize a few scriptures, but to know in your heart what that God is. Also, to know yourself honestly. To know who you are, what makes you tick. And it took me some years to understand and, and get to that place and to display that same person. So you don't have to use, oh, I'm hiding this part of my life to these people and I'm willing to show this to other people. And that, that balancing act, that game, is something I had early on as a little kid who liked to get away with stuff and then I was always hiding stuff. So. That beacon is to know a God, to know yourself honestly and display that person and know the relationship between the two. And I missed that. So I went on to a public high school. Something happened that first summer before then. I found myself in front of kids who were uh, drinking alcohol and using drugs openly with each other down by the river, which is where we, you would go in the 70s. Down by the river. And I had been told by the priests my parents and the police who knew my older brothers by first name. Just what was wrong with drugs and alcohol. You have to be 21, and it's dangerous. It's for adults. Drugs are illegal. They're bad. They can kill you. But when I saw it happening, everything stopped for me. I just went right towards it. I was just drawn in by the... It looked like they were having fun. It looked like they were having more fun than me. And sure enough, when I put chemicals in my body, my head did change. My mind changed. I felt... Like these new friends were old friends. I felt like I was a little more confident and maybe my jokes were funnier than they actually were. So it gave me a certain feeling. And it's a funny thing, looking back, at the end of that night, I was on the side yard vomiting in the bushes and immediately trying to hide that from my parents. So my first attempt at doing something that was to give me a thrill was a failure and I looked at it as a competitive kid as, I'm going to do that better next time. And on I went with my own self-will, no spiritual beacon. I managed to get through four years of high school as a sort of weekend warrior, 
worked hard playing soccer during the weekdays and going to school and, and then partying with my friends on the weekend. I took an 800 mile journey to walk on the University of South Carolina the year before Coach Doug got there and I was the one walk-on player they took in 1983. So I felt lucky, but I had a dream of playing four years of D1 and I, uh, I went for it. So I got on the team and that started another journey. No parents, the only authority figures were the two coaches and maybe somebody from the uh, athletic department uh, tutoring group, which I never bothered to go to. And I like that. I set out on my own, my will became stronger. I remember distinctly being invited by a couple of teammates of ours to this uh, uh, FCA thing. And when I found out it involved Bibles and getting together without alcohol, I was out. <laughs> I'll be honest, I was, would dodge these two guys on my team for the invitation they would give me because it scared me and I thought it meant going under some control of other people or a God possibly. Don't let that statement stop you from continuing to invite everybody you know in your life to come down here because y'all are doing a healthy, wonderful thing for yourselves and the more you can get in this room and maybe even grow into another room, you're doing a great service. So I say that to say that I was afraid, I had fear, and it turned me the other way. So I managed to uh, put a four-year degree into a six-year period. Yes, Doug, you're right, six years. That's how smart I am. I took way more classes than I needed. And uh, by the end, I had to uh, find a new dream. My dream of soccer just wasn't gonna happen. The uh, mullet, the authentic late 80s mullet, you gotta find that picture on the internet, it's a good one. Uh, and uh, that life was gonna be behind me, so I had to pivot, I had to make a new change, and music was growing in my heart. And I found three like-minded guys called Hootie and the Blowfish. And uh, yeah, isn't that a funny name? I tried to get them to change it, they didn't, they didn't wanna have it. It was uh, a good time, we all wanted to write songs, and we all had some things. We had a work ethic, we had will that would, uh, uh, perseverance, we had a gifted singer, Darius Rucker. That didn't hurt either. And we were all learning to write songs uh, as we went. And so we did. We uh, started playing in 1989. It was my uh, first gig with the band. And uh, we booked ourselves. We bought a van. The nights that we weren't getting gigs, we rehearsed hard. And we partied hard. And uh, after 1989, came 90. We did about 90 shows that year. 91, we probably did 100 and some. 92 came around, 93 came around. We were growing as a bar band. We played down here at this dive, which at the time was called Al's Pump House. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> yes, I don't think it's Al anymore. Alice moved on. But uh, yeah, driving by that tonight gave me a memory and probably a flashback of a regret and indigestion from the worst wings I've ever eaten. Oh. <laughs> It was 1990. So we, we moved around, we worked hard, and a crazy thing happened uh, after that first five years together, we got signed to a record deal, which meant they were gonna try and put our song on the radio. And a song that uh, we had written many years earlier was our first attempt. And uh, a guy who was head of a late night TV show called David Letterman at that time, heard it on the way home from work, he said, he called back to work and said, give me that band that sings Hold My Hand. 
And they said, well, I can't hear you the blowfish. And he said, oh, that's cute, that's fine. Get him anyway. And suddenly our song was streamed and not streamed. How did they, uh, an antenna? Shot it through the airwaves and <laughs> millions of homes. I don't even remember it was so long ago. That was 1994 and uh, our trajectory changed. And off we went into a new life of stardom, of fame, of travel, of fans. We moved from playing to six or 700 people a night to 15 to 20,000 people a night. Not a problem, a great trajectory for a career, but a guy like me who enjoyed the five years in the clubs, the partying where there were no authority figures, there were no guardrails, there was no one to tell me if I was out of line. I would carry a regret if I had one from one town and then leave it to the next town. You just play Raleigh one night, you play Asheville the next, you play Knoxville and you keep moving on. And I thought leaving regrets or disappointments or failures left them in the dust. But in reality, I was carrying them all along with me. Those things don't leave. You can push them under the rug. You can do whatever, but they're there with you in shame, guilt, regret. So I carried them. We had probably five good years where we got to travel the world, do some amazing things that we'd never believed possible, and uh, had some really good times, made some good friends, and some mistakes. And by 2000, that train of fame and fortune was started to come down the other side of that mountain. And I was not emotionally ready to deal with that. I was uh, probably 35 years old by that time and thought I knew a lot. I was probably the man, as uh, Proverbs 26 says, a man who is wise in his own eyes. I never liked those old Proverbs from the Old Testament either because they always told the truth. They always picked at something in me that was scared me because they were honest and they're real and they're true, and I didn't want to have to apply them to myself, but Proverbs 26 says, uh, warning to a man who's wise in his own eyes, a fool has a better chance. And that was me. I had seen fame and fortune. Society told me I was successful. So as I did shoot for a healthy career, and I got there, when I got there, I believed that's all I needed. By then I'd started a family, I checked that off, start family, buy home, have a car in your driveway, and look successful. And society will tell you if you get those things that you are, but that's the outside, that's the veneer that I want people to see. So by 2000, when I'm struggling with the reality that I have already reached and passed the high point of my musical career, I struggle and I lean into the thing that seemed to work for me temporarily at times in my life called alcohol. It gets dark, it gets worse. The interventions come from family and friends. I just can't deal with where my life is. I'm scared. Now we're having children. I'm in a marriage I'm unsure about, frankly. I have more fears and pride knocking around in my body. I don't know what to do. By 2005, I am in a position where I realize this hurts more to go on than than anything else. I can't stop putting the thing in my body that I think gives me a good feeling, called a chemical, yet I have a regret every time I put it in. So I uh, acknowledge this place that I didn't ever want to get and go to a friend and ask where he goes for help. Because I used to party with the guy and I never saw him anymore at the clubs. I never saw him hanging out. 
But the times I did see him, he would say, hey, if you ever want to, you know, change your course, here's my phone number, wink, wink. What is he talking about, change your course? If you ever want to try something new, if you ever want to get well, and he meant go with him to a 12-step meeting. So one morning I had a sign, a very powerful sort of move, I believe, to be from God, my four-year-old daughter. Hopped up on my chest. I was in a detached studio that I had built behind my home, detached literally and sort of spiritually from my family. And she came up to see what I was doing on a Sunday morning, passed out on the couch up there. She said, Dad, what are you doing? Uh, I'm not doing well. She repeated, Dad, what are you doing? And I had nothing. God was sort of zipping up my lip. And I wouldn't, I didn't have the answer that I usually would for her with, with some excuse. Why are you in the clothes you wore last night? Nothing. Why do you smell so funny, Dad? Nothing. She ran off frustrated and I was stuck with me and that question, what are you doing? I look up, uh, Maybe God knows what I'm doing. I certainly don't know what I'm doing, and I acknowledged it that day. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 40 years old, successful on paper, no spiritual beacon, no clue as to where to go. And my friend brought me to a 12-step meeting where I found people acknowledging their flaws, acknowledging they were powerless over one thing for sure, alcohol, but discovering that they were powerless over many things in their life. So, I liked what I heard, so I stayed. I kept coming back. I committed to trying not to drink and go into these 12-step meetings. It's a spiritual program that can help those afflicted with powerlessness over gambling, uh, sexual problems, pornography, codependent relationships, trauma, so Celebrate Recovery is one place to go. You get to go through the 12 steps and figure out who you are, who God is, and what you're powerless over. So I started going to these 12-step groups. They suggested I, through these steps, get right. Get right with what? Well, get right with yourself, with God, and with those around you. I said, all right, show me the way. At the same time that I began these 12-step meetings, which were scary at first, but I couldn't help but be intrigued with people being brutally honest. People who had given away their driver's license, their jobs, their spouses. They said they lost them, but they didn't really lose them. They chose alcohol over them. There were some tough stories, including jail, prison, and these people were being honest, humble, as we would say willing to share their truth because they had been redeemed. They had found another way. So I kept going. They suggested getting right. They said do it through the acronym HOW, H-O-W. Become honest, open-minded, as if the words are above me. You can see them, right? Honest, open-minded, and willing. I wasn't sure what it meant. I was a 40-year-old man who was sick, trying to get well. I wasn't a bad person, but I didn't know anything about these steps. I didn't know anything about God. So I took their advice. I was there to recover from what I thought was alcohol addiction, but I was really there to find a rebirth. So one of the first parts of this, which I find valuable because I see people using some of these techniques, as I said, in Celebrate Recovery for different reasons other than 
addiction, it was a inventory, a personal inventory. I thought, that doesn't sound like fun, right? A personal inventory? Because if you have a business, you have to do a business out, uh, inventory. No one that runs a business can go without a good business inventory. You look at what's on your shelves, you give it values. Some things have high value, you sell them at that value. Some things aren't selling, you either give them away or put them on sale. Some things have just zero value and you have to toss them. My personal inventory involved looking at my personal life and seeing what things I was doing, what ideas had value, which ones weren't working. And as I mentioned, I was a man who was wise in his own eyes. So I came in there thinking, I don't have any resentments. I don't have any anger issues. I'm good. I'm successful. But what I found was I had some facts to face about my journey. I had hurt people. I had hurt myself. I had to come to terms with these, these weaknesses in my life, these failures and these flaws. And, you know, I'd been told most of my life, and maybe you're at that place too, they say, find your strengths. Be strong. Don't let them see you down. Don't be too sensitive. I'd been told this my whole life. And what I found was my strengths or my accolades, awards on the shelf from Hootie and the Blowfish, plaques on the wall, they didn't matter at all, not in the spiritual life. What mattered was finding out the opposite, my weaknesses, my obstacle course, right? We think that being strong is the key, but what's more valuable in the course of life where there's hardship, heartache, difficulty, bad luck? There's all these things that we have to navigate, but if you know the obstacle course of your weaknesses, well, now you've got a head start. It's good to have strengths, certainly. It's good to know them. But I was at age 40, suddenly learning the valuable part was acknowledging my imperfections and moving forward. So I did. I found some real flaws, some real defects. But as I trusted God through this process, as I trusted the spiritual 12-step program, my faith began to grow. I knew I needed God, so the inventory became a reckoning with God to say, this is who I am. And with myself to acknowledge who I was, I found fear, I found pride, I found an addiction to another thing called your approval, which really kept me down because I kept doing dumb things in relationships to gain approval, and they weren't healthy for me or the other person. I had self-pity that I practiced, blame. So I took these obstacles, or these flaws and started to get right with God. Got on my knees. I was taught to then say a sincere prayer, which is helpful. I had prayed a few times in my life, just not very sincerely. I started praying sincerely, and my uh, friend in the program said, while praying, move your feet. Thought, what does that mean, while praying, move your feet? He said, well, you can pray to a powerful God that you tell me you believe in. A God so powerful, he can give you all you could ever ask or imagine, as Ephesians says. But you have some responsibilities, so you better be willing to move your feet while you're praying to your powerful God. I have responsibilities. I have things that are my job to do, paying my rent, putting diapers on my kids, being patient, being tolerant down here on little planet Earth. These are my responsibilities. I need the power, believe me. Amen to the power of Jesus Christ, but 
I can't rely on him to do it all. So I get right in my inventory with myself. I discover who I am. I get right with God on my knees and continue praying on a daily basis. But I got to get right with something perhaps equally important, those around me. So I'm asked to make amends. So the people that I had harmed, which after 40 years was a pretty long list, uh, I go out to make direct amends wherever possible. Not begging for apologies or begging for forgiveness. An amend is to put something back together that you've broken. Maybe you've just been inconsiderate. Maybe you've lied. Maybe you've stolen. Whatever it may be, you mend it by saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong and you move forward. So I had some amends to make to get right with those around me. The book of Matthew suggests just as much. We can't be right with God until we're right with those around us. Our relationship with God is sort of resting on, in fact, our love for others, how we treat those around us. I can say I love God. I can say I understand God. But God looks at me and says, well, how are you treating your brother? How are you treating your sisters? And that's a harder thing to acknowledge to me. I can memorize my Bible verses. I can get on my knees. But the harder job is to look honestly in the mirror and say, how have I done today with the people around me? Do I have resentments? Have I been angry? Have I been short? When I'm not happy with the way people drive around me, am I putting all five fingers out the window? Or just one? Those are the measurements that are my responsibility. I need God's power and I need my faith. But I've got some responsibility in this. So I've, through some years, uh, learned to do it on a daily basis. And I've used one main prayer that um, the folks in the 12-step groups sort of co-opted. It was written before the um, 12-step group started. But uh, it's called the Serenity Prayer. And it's a way, and this is for anybody of any age, as are these steps of getting right with God and yourself and others. It doesn't matter if you're 18 or 80. Our charge is how we treat others, right? So we gotta get right with all three of those. We need a little bit of a map. So I use the serenity prayer to give me a daily map. So I've got life coming at me hard, resentments, things that are disappointments. I've got good days, good seasons, but on a daily basis, I wanna to pray to my God. So I ask him for help. I need wisdom to know the difference between these two things. Grant me peace, serenity, to accept the things I can't change. And believe me, as you get older, and maybe you know this already, there are more things out there that I can't control than there are things I can control. I need to be able to accept the things I can't change. There's only two things I can actually control in this world. And I've tried so hard to prove this wrong. My attitude and my actions. Two things. So as I sit there and try and convince other people what to do or other people how to act or teach my own children and get frustrated and all bent out of shape because I can't control them, that's not my job to control. I can control my actions and my attitude and those are very important. So I ask God to give me peace. Give me the just peace to, to do that, except the things I cannot change. And then, and the other category, and virtually everything else in your day is in one of these two categories. Courage to change the things I can. 
my responsibilities, making amends where possible, building my character, not just letting it be revealed when I get angry and all flustered. So each day when I pray, I pray, God, you are powerful. You love me. I love you. I think we got a good thing going on, but I need help. I need help categorizing these two lanes in life. And this allows me to put everything in my day in two simple lanes. It's either my job to change it, or it's not my job. And if it's not my job, I can pray. I can pray. I can try and help, but I can't control it. So we say the serenity prayer at the meetings I still go to after almost 17 years at every meeting. For the addict, it's important that we, we acknowledge we only have a day. We have a daily reprieve from our addiction. So what we do in that day is the only thing we're worried about. So the 24-hour period becomes super important. Um, so I charge out on a daily basis with my serenity prayer. And there are seasons where I'm not sure honestly where God is, if he's looking at me, if he's, if he's right there with me, if he's doing the things I'm asking and praying for. And when you're in doubt, and maybe you have a season where you're unsure, it's okay to have doubts. If you're ever wondering where God is in your life, and if you're praying hard and you just feel like you're not here, you're in some desert. I heard a few years ago uh, something that was I also use on a daily basis. If you don't know what to do in this situation, because you feel not connected with God, you ask the simple question, what does love require of me in that situation? That will give you the answer. And I believe if God is love, it is his answer. So if you ever in doubt about where God is today, ask what does love require of you? And you'll get an answer, I promise you that. Thank you all for being attentive listeners. Cal, tell me how much time we have and where we are. We can take some questions if we got time. If not, I'll do a shameless self-promotion to say, I have written a new book. What? It's not out there anymore. It's called Swimming with the Blowfish. It's about the journey, 264 pages of a longer version of what I just told you. Uh, perhaps if any of your parents are fans, because that age bracket seems to be a lot of Hootie fans. I'll be selling copies of the book. I take Venmo out there. I'd be happy to personalize a copy for your mom or dad. And wouldn't that be the greatest gift a child could give? <laughs> I know you believe that. So I'll be hanging out in the lobby. I hope you get to come out and uh, say hi, buy a book, and, and uh, if not, shake hands at least. A few minutes for a few questions. A few minutes for a few questions? Who's got that burning desire question that they have to ask me. It can be about Darius Strucker, I understand. <laughs> He's all that. Come on, don't be shy. Because I'm not picking Mr. Allison. Yes? The biggest show you ever did? The biggest show we ever did, we sort of consistently did amphitheaters, which hold about 20,000 people. But uh, we got to do a few bigger festivals. Got to play on a beach full of people in South Africa that was uh, probably much more than 20,000 people when you looked out. Uh, we got to play that song, Hold My Hand, which David Letterman got to millions of people. We got to play it in a stadium, which is one of the most magnificent 
things I got to be a part of. We only played one song, but we got to usher in about 60,000 participants and their family from the Special Olympics in 1995 up in uh, Connecticut. And in the center of that stadium, we got to sing a song of hope and of love and togetherness in front of that just amazing group. That was like one that still gives me chills thinking about. There's probably 60,000 people there that day. And just a, just a gift to be able to sit there and play your little tune, three and a half minutes. So good question. Thank you. I think I saw another hand. That's you, man. Yeah, so when you like accomplished all of, all of these like huge goals in your career, at what point did you realize that like I want more or I don't want more, this isn't fulfilling? Was it like immediately once it started declining or was it like just you just kind of wanted to keep on? I started obsessing over the empty seats as the audience shrunk up after the year 2000. When I got sober in 2005, I spent about three years as probably the only sober guy who was trying to be with God and live a better godly life. About three years on the road with the band, off and on, as my kids grew from their young age. And that was about really all I wanted. It was hard to be the only guy sober in a massive party. And when you do all these concerts, it's somebody's big night. Wherever you go, it's their big night, so they're taking it to the next level. And so I finally grew tired of that lifestyle. I just was not inspired to be around the party, and our career had sort of gotten down here anyway. And so we made a decision to uh, go into dormancy. That was 2008. And uh, a crazy thing happened during that year. Darius Rucker became a big country star, which helped solidify my ability to stay home uh, uh, and raise five of our own kids with uh, my wife, Laura. And it solidified that I could start maybe a new musical push. And so at that time, I started writing contemporary Christian music. So if you're on Spotify, you can go find four different EPs worth of uh, songs praising Jesus, talking about the journey through sobriety. And uh, I realized that my gift of songwriting with Hootie the Blowfish could be bent just a little bit to uh, talk about celebrating life, celebrating uh, new beginnings, rebirth, redemption. So that's what I've been doing. I bring that message out to some FCA groups, but a lot of celebrate recovery groups and uh, recovery groups in general. So God worked a, a major thing in my heart to change my course, and it's been uh, a really good journey. Thanks for that question. Going twice. Yes, sir. When you were with the band, did for writing songs, would each of you write your own songs and the band would play together, or would you all collaborate on the songs? Mixture. That's a good question about songwriting. Uh, we collaborated on most of our material, but since the four of us were songwriters, any one of us could bring in lyrics or music or melodies, and then you just have to be willing to have your band say, oh, that sucked, or that's a terrible idea for a song. And so you have to be a little thick-skinned. So we did, we wrote and collaborated together. Even Each of us brought in our own uh, songs that sort of uh, were personal to us through the years, and um, so we sort of made it up as we went along, but being a solo artist, I've enjoyed um, always being right. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> Any other questions? Is that a call for me? 
Is that my dad trying to FaceTime me back there? I can hear it. <laughs> Cal, where are we? Yeah, I think we're good now. We're good? Yeah. So. You guys do a prayer? What do we do now? Yeah, you <laughs> pray us out and then... Sure. You do a what after that? Closing announcements after that. Closing announcements. Should I pray now or wait till the end? Uh, pray now. All right. Let's let's all stand and have a prayer. Lord, what a beauty it is to be connected, and I believe you're probably working a great service to the people in this room that already feel and know it is the connectivity that we need going forward. We don't try and do it alone. We need a group around us. We need safe relationships. We need good leadership. So I am so grateful to be in this room tonight. I hope that my words have resonated. Uh, They're not original to me. The principles I've learned came from you. And I'm so thankful just to be a vessel for a few minutes to share those. I ask you to bless the past of everyone in this room as they go forward tonight for this day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks,